0: Dead faith does not lead to salvation. St. James said that, right? St. James did not say, if you do a bunch of good works, your faith doesn't matter. He says, my good works demonstrate my faith. Welcome, everybody, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley. I almost said Van Vickle. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined by Dave, not the KFC1 Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? Good. Yeah.
1: What does that mean? I don't not know what KFC. it means, but Rebecca, whose email we're going to go through, that's the name oh, yeah. she gave you. Oh, yeah. All right. All right. I'm doing okay. I'm busy. I am preparing for the convocation of priests and deacons in tulsa oklahoma next week well i mean i don't know if i need any booze right now i'm (laughs) I'm freaking out enough on my own but uh no it's good uh i'm excited to be there with them and to you know try to do try to help a little bit and uh i'm actually going to give a talk the night before just to a parish there for a priest by the name of father brian o'brien which is awesome (laughs) oh parents Uh, are fun (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's in Stillwater. Have you been there? Yes. Of course yeah. I've been
0: to Stillwater.
1: That's a cool place, huh? Yeah. No, not really.
0: It's Stillwater. It's fine. <laughs> you know what's awesome is, okay, so this month I'm doing the Houston Coalition for Life. I saw uh, that. Yeah, I'm doing the the young adult, younger adult talk um for them. It's a kickoff at the Armadillo Palace of Good Company Barbecue, which is awesome. Um, so I'm doing that on uh, the, oh gosh, top of my head, 18th, something like that, 19th, and then I'm going to go to Texas A&M at the Ooh. wonderful St. Mary's Catholic, uh, Catholic Center, and I'm giving a talk, a magnify talk to the students on dun, 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 the atonement. <laughs> cool. What's magnify? What is that? Magnify is, that like, is like their XLT, but for college students, right? College so students. it's okay. adoration, a talk, adoration, praise, and worship. Confession, stuff like that. You know, one of the cool things that we've added because our priests have been added a bit about this this year is when we do an XLT for our high school youth group, we have confessions. Okay. And having Father David Hust at, he comes to all of our high school youth group meetings, he just sits in the office of the youth minister and hears confessions the whole time. And uh, it's just such a blessing to have priests who are communicating the sacramental life over and over and over again to our kids. To the point where it becomes normal, right? That's the thing that I think people don't see is when you do the sacraments
1: often, they become normal parts, ordinary parts of the human life. Exactly. Right. And uh, I know, I totally agree. You know, I had him, uh, I had Father David do a series with me for my patrons. Yeah. And it was called From His Fullness. It was about getting the most out of daily prayer, scripture, the mass, and confession, which we kind of pitched it as like, you know, these are four pillars of grace to become a saint, you know? He is so fantastic. Like, I mean, I know he doesn't have time for a podcast, but he needs one because you ask him a question and he just goes Mm -hmm. like crazy and you start pulling out gold nuggets from it, like constantly, you know? Because he's so deliberate about everything. He's so strategic, you know, everything. So it it was fantastic. I want to tell you about this event we've been doing in Pittsburgh. Okay, it's strange. Okay, so you know, I I co-founded this thing, the Immaculate Heart Center. Okay, mm-hmm. and the basically we're we're we exist to help God's people live in the freedom of God's children. Okay, as it says in the Renewal of the Baptismal Promises. So we we decided to have this event where we would uh, you know like basically try to assist people in the spiritual battle, help them encounter the liberating presence of Jesus Christ. So what we do is. Priests arrive around five and they have, they put out the blessed sacrament, they have adoration. So people start arriving around five and the priests go into the confessionals and they hear confessions until about, I arrive like around 630 at like 640. They repose the blessed sacrament. They continue to hear confessions. I give a talk. And by that time, usually the church has been packed for all these events. So Mm -hmm. it's been, it's been cool. Cool. We give a talk on just basically how to, you know, encounter the liberating presence of Christ that we're all in a battle, you know, and everything. And there's mass, great preacher, okay? Then after the mass, a young priest who has faculties and and has, you know, official lettering and everything like that, don't worry. He stands at the altar and he reads the leonine the minor exorcism rite okay. over the people. Wow. And it's neat because no one people are totally shocked that this is still a part of our faith, but they're hugely affected by this. So we've had incredible feedback. Now, most of the feedback is just anecdotal. And and again, a lot of it is feelings, you know, the way people feel. But what we're seeing now as we're getting weeks out from these events is people are saying like, yeah, I have new freedoms in my life that I never had before. Mm -hmm. So after he does this, all of the priests there, we give them a first-class relic and they line up in the front of the church and people come up for individual blessings by first class relic. And it's just like this really neat event. Mm. And it's so Catholic because, you know, it's like all the Latin, all the, you know, the, the incense, all the relics, all that kind of stuff, a million blessings. And, uh, it's been a really cool thing that, uh, we're so careful about it going overboard, you know? Yeah. So we're very careful about that as far as like, we don't want people to think that like, you know, that, the devil's around every corner, but just very plainly and practically explain to them, like, no, what we're here is to remind you that we're all in a battle, and that's what tonight's about, and we want to strengthen you. It's been a really neat thing to do.
0: One of the cool things that we did along those lines is we did um, epiphany water.
1: Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's, I've that's a I've never heard thing. of this. Oh, okay, I've
0: never heard of this. Our priest was given, it can only be done by the bishop, right? and the bishop may delegate one priest in the diocese to do it. Right, and our pastor was delegated. I wish I could have gone to it, but I couldn't have. And uh, so they blessed. I mean, I think hundreds of gallons of water. Right, and they, you know, exorcism salt. Again, it's one of the prayers of the old rite. There, there is no modern rite of the Epiphany water. The salt, right? Yeah, right. And it comes from the Eastern Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodoxy. So, um, it's it's so fascinating to experience this in our church because I have people who said that is the most catholic thing i've ever done in my life. yeah, right, right. right. so it is it is fascinating. now can i ask you a uh potentially controversial but it's not meant to be it's meant to be a practical question? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. would you still be able to function if the leonine rights were
1: abrogated by pope francis's motu proprio? um so that's a big question right now. Mm. everybody's asking this. um because the minor exorcism i don't know if it's been if it's been translated, like, updated. Mm. I don't think it has been. Mm. So I think that would be an issue. Yeah. I think that would be an issue. Now, there are other prayers we could use Yeah, that are part of the new right. Like, yeah. they have... Um... Actually, no. You know what? Now that I think about it, the, the Leonine exorcism, the minor exorcism, is in the new right, so maybe it has been updated. I'd have mm. to look. Okay. We should have a canon lawyer on and talk about all this sometime. Yeah. Yeah. I it I is like fascinating. It. That was the first thought in my mind, though, when I read the new... Yeah. All the documents coming from Pope Francis, the motu proprio and the dubia. Yeah, I was like, "Whoa, hold on! Can they use it for, you know, because this is going to really affect yeah. the the ministry I'm involved with?" You know, yeah.
0: And Pope Francis, uh, probably more than any modern pope, probably to Leo himself, Leo the Thirteenth, has talked about Satan and exorcism. Oh, more than and- any pope in history ever. Yeah. Okay. By far. Yeah. So yeah. I had one um very traditional priest say essentially if he abrogates the right i'm still going to use it and another priest responded <laughs> do you think that's going to work out for you when the pope uh, when you act in disobedience in order to exercise exercise yeah. a poor soul so
1: yeah i'm i'm sad. i'm going to miss the uh, the, the exorcism conference this year and i'm sure that'll be a big point of discussion oh yeah there oh, yeah. you know but i'm gonna miss where's
0: it, so. the strongest guy in pittsburgh how come he's not here what oh, no, is that is nobody that even a,
1: knows me is that a couple they, weeks you know me as like the grumpy non-priest who sits in the back <laughs> and doesn't talk to anybody <laughs> Is that the conference that's in
0: a couple of weeks or something? Yeah, huh. yeah, nice. I'm going to that. Did I tell you I'm going to that? I'm the I'm the featured speaker. No, you're not. I'm going to talk about features. youth ministry and the devil. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> I'm going to change hearts and lives. <laughs> I'm going to talk about atonement theology, uh, the reciprocity be so between awesome faith and awesome the if you Did go. <laughs> I know, I know. They wouldn't like it. They wouldn't like it at all. Oh, uh, man. Charismatic priests love me. Traditional priests love me. It's everyone in between that
1: doesn't like me. That's the way kind of I feel. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, so so we've been talking about this document. Oh, what a but document. But I, like, I feel like if we go much further without answering the questions that yeah. we're going to get too far away. Yeah. So we have like a, a good email today. Do you want me to? Uh, yeah. Why don't you highlight it? Um, Do you want this- me to read this whole thing? Okay.
0: No. let's 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 skim through it real quick because so rebecca's writing us. why don't you you skim through it yeah Yeah. all right well so rebecca's writing us because she wants us to bring a little further clarity uh thank you for this week's podcast she actually wrote this after the very first one a touch on something i've been thinking a lot about lately with the importance of the incarnation and sacramentality my thoughts on this came up when having a very spirited discussion with a protestant family member about the eucharist i'm struggling in one area hope you can help me better understand this now let me say this uh, this is what this is exactly what me and Dave wanted with this series. Yeah. We know that maybe we lost some of you who weren't theologically or philosophically minded, like, hey, let's just get back to loving our neighbor and loving God. But here's the deal. This had her thinking a lot about the importance of the incarnation and sacramentality. That's awesome. What I gathered from the podcast was that the sacraments and faith are both necessary because there's a reciprocity between them. I absolutely agree with that and understand the importance of both faith and sacraments. But with that, I'm also hearing that if you don't have faith, then the sacraments don't work. My word's not yours, and only my words because I don't have a better way of describing what I'm struggling with. My understanding has always been that even if you don't believe the Eucharist is the body of Christ, it doesn't change that. In fact, it is the body of Christ. And even if the priest doesn't believe it, the wine and bread still become the body and blood of Christ during Mass due to his ordination The the graces received there. or even And also he has to intend what the church intends, which is the slippery slope. Or even if you are only getting your child baptized because it's a cultural tradition, the grace is still conferred, and the stain of original sin is still removed. After listening to the podcast, I started to think that perhaps these things were not true, and for the sacrament to be real, then belief must be there too. Am I wrong in my original beliefs, or did I misunderstand or take it too far, the tie between the sacrament and faith? Dave, why don't we
1: break the question up here, and then we'll go through we'll go through the latter part later. Yeah, cool. I think that... Um well, first of all, we have to separate uh, the Eucharist and baptism. Okay, so let's put it into two different sacraments, you know. And the Eucharist, very clearly, she, she stated correctly, that it, it does not matter whether we believe it or not. It is act sacramentally the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. What this document speaks to is the effectiveness it takes within our soul. That is what we have to remember, is that uh, even though it actually changes, which, which should be Shouldn't give you some trepidation, right? That whether you believe it or not, it truly is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Even if you don't have faith that it is, it still is. Now, the question is, eating that, consuming that, encountering the Lord in that way, if you don't believe it, what effect can it take? In this case, it's not like human food, right? Where no matter what you do, if you eat a banana, it's going to have the effect it's supposed to have on your on your body, even if you believe it's a banana or not. Mm-hmm. This is food for the soul, so that's where it would be different. Uh, now, wh- why don't you address baptism? Because you know that's
0: well, we'll get to that in a second. Because I think one of the things that we need to because with baptism, you have to differentiate between adult baptism and infant baptism, right? But spending time talking about faith, faith is not magic. The sacraments are not magic. When we talk about the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments, we mean, okay, what is faith? Faith is first a gift from God, second, it's my trustful surrender to God and what he revealed. And the point of the document is when God revealed himself, he revealed himself in a sacramental way. He used creation to pass through his divine power so that we could receive it in a human way, which culminates in the incarnation, right? so the the object of faith is inherently sacramental, because God reveals himself perfectly in the human nature of Christ, but he reveals himself sacramentally. So what I believe is always sacramental, what I have faith in. right Now, right. let's say then I have this subjective uh, I, I go forward to receive Holy Communion. I'm there because my mother makes me. I'm there because it's my wedding day and we are there for, you know, to get married in the church, but we don't really care. We don't believe in the dead and risen Christ. We are just there to make, you know, in-laws happy or whatever it might be there. This is where we talk about ex opere operantis, right? So ex opere operato, you might've heard that before. Um, By the very deed being done, the sacrament is conferred. Right. So by the priest saying the words and intending what the church intends, that the Eucharist, the, the bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Uh, by the very deed done. And the church emphasized that doctrine because of the Protestant Reformation, because Protestants were saying, No, it all depends upon the subjective disposition of the priests and earlier holiness movements and all this stuff. And it's like, no, Christ is faithful, Christ keeps his promises, the Holy Spirit can overcome the defect of any sinner priest at the same time. There is what got minimized was this ex opere operantis, which is receiving or the work being done in the mode of the receiver. And St. Thomas Aquinas would say that if there is, like, if an adult comes forward for baptism and there's zero faith, you will probably have to rebaptize that adult. Right. And he uses the word rebaptism, which is pretty crazy. Right. Because um, most of us would, in, it's insane. Yeah. We would shrink away from that. Yeah. But um, it's about approaching the sacrament with sincerity. A defect that nullifies the ability of the sacrament to take care of it. What we tend to say as Catholics is the sacrament will take care of it. I know little Johnny is an atheist, but he's going to get confirmed anyway. The sac- he needs all the sacramental grace he can get. But when you approach the throne of grace with insincerity, it doesn't work. St. Thomas would say that if you get baptized as an adult and you don't renounce sin, you do not get the grace of baptism. Right. And so that is pretty epic. So what we would say very clearly is the response of the sacraments, why are you approaching the sacraments? Everything, faith in the sacraments, is towards communion with God in Christ Jesus. You live that that daily life of communion, it's through faith, through prayer, through devotion. Right. If you come to the sacraments, it's like coming to prayer or devotion, right? If you come to it without actually believing in Jesus or surrendering your life to him then you're treating God like your butler, or you're just doing it to put on a show, right? And so I think Jesus Christ would say, okay, for those of you who want to come forward for Holy Communion, and you don't have faith in me, you have your reward, right? Just like doing works of charity, so that you may be seen, you have your reward. That's it. Congratulations. You were seen, but you don't get eternal life. Right, You don't get the grace if you approach it with insincerity, or in this case, what we're saying,
1: a lack of faith. Jesus might more charitably say, because of your lack of faith, I can't do what I want to do inside of you.
0: Mm. (laughs) Jesus would probably say, you
1: blind guides and hypocrites. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I I totally get what you're saying. Um, And it's an issue. and, And here's the thing. You know, I have to go back to a, a phrase that Sherry Waddell constantly uses: uh, rather than take a label, take a story. Right? Yeah. Or she, I mean, I'm I'm butchering whatever she says, but but uh, in each person's, I mean, we don't know the level of faith. Like we can we can look and see, we don't know the level of faith each person approaches the sacrament with. And and again, it's not it's not an all or nothing thing. It could be, but in most cases, it's a. Yeah, I believe in it, but what is the level of faith there? I mean, what what do I really want out of this? And so we're talking about like w- like getting into questions like, what does this person's th- think? What does this person think God is? What does this person to think God wants to do for them? I mean, those are all valid questions that are gonna yeah. uh, affect how they approach the sacraments. So one day I was
0: talking on or about RCIA. I was at an event by the archdiocese, and it was like group discussion. And I said, you know, you cannot just give the sacrament of baptism away because someone has good enough attendance. And this guy started yelling at me in front of everyone. How dare you? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Some judge. You get to decide someone's eternal life. Who do you, you know, all this stuff. And uh, when he was done, I just looked at him and I said, what are the rites that we do before Easter Vigil? And he's like, "Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I was like, the three rites that we do, what do we call those during Lent that we do before the Easter Vigil? They're called the scrutinies. Scrutinies. (laughs) The whole point of the scrutinies are to scrutinize the individual to see if they are already living a gospel-centered life. Like You're not allowed to enter the catechumenate unless you have an understanding of Catholic doctrine, a basic understanding. And you have, uh, uh, you call on God regularly in prayer, and you have a desire for the sacraments. And yet, what do we find over and over again? We don't even have that at the end of the catechumenate. Right, yeah. Right, and that's just to get, like, read the rite of reception, or not rite of reception, rite of welcome, rite of acceptance, whatever the, the, the catechumenate one is, not the candidate one. It'll say, it has these criteria in the paragraphs. And I just said, okay, so you're saying if anyone presents themselves regardless— I said, and yet over and over again, the church asked the pastor and those, the pastor empowers, empowers
1: to. Right. This isn't just a cute little thing. Right. Exactly. This is a new way of life. So a new way of life. So can I just tell you, so last night as I was like re-looking at this document, I was realizing what an issue it is that we don't know what normal is. Yeah. So like. For instance, we get we got one email where someone says like, well, what shouldn't we shouldn't we convey the sacrament because what if the sacrament gives the grace needed for that person's conversion? Okay, hmm. and and this is the problem I think is that we kind of consider it a a, a one son some, some game here, right? Like we're all or nothing, where it's like, well, they're just gonna leave and we'll never have a chance to get them. Because we don't have an evangelizing church. Yeah. So it's not like we're, so it's like, it's kind of like the sacraments are it for us. You know, people feel like they're in this kind of corner here. Like if we we don't have anything else besides the sacraments and, and, and we have to realize like, hold on a second, we're supposed to be an evangelizing church. Like, there's a whole lot more to the church than just the sacraments. The sacraments are the way, the center, right? the The reason that we're that we're part of this church. But don't forget, like we have to introduce them to the person of Jesus Christ first. And just because we don't convey a sacrament doesn't mean we're going to leave them in the lurch like that. Yeah, I, I don't know. It seems like a lot of these problems, particularly with what you're talking about, is. We have never seen what normal should be
0: yeah. and in so our lifetime. Paragraph 56 goes to this where it says, um, in fact, the sacraments of the new law are effective signs which transmit grace. As we have already said, this does not mean that the sacraments are the only means right. by which God transmits his grace. It does mean that they hold a privileged position marked by certainty and ecclesiality. So when we talk about this, we have to realize that as Catholics, what we essentially have done is the exact opposite of what the church asks of us. What we do is we don't evangelize, we barely catechize, and we put all the emphasis on the ex operato of the sacraments. And we Treat them like magical rituals wherein people get this magical thing called grace that overrides their human will, that overrides their human intellect, and conforms them to a quote-unquote practicing Catholic, which we have narrowly defined as going to Mass on Sunday. When, in fact, the Church has stated over and over and over again that the, the sacred liturgy, the Holy Mass, does not exhaust all that it is to be Catholic, right? And... That before someone comes to Mass to receive Holy Communion, they have to be evangelized, they have to be converted, and they have to live a life of prayer. Right. So before all of this, what we do is we sacramentalize them, and then we just, okay, adios, see you later, and we don't evangelize, we don't go after them, we don't do... If you baptize an infant, you do mystagogy, right? You pursue them with an evangelizing way of living your baptism. And then when it comes to First Holy Communion and reconciliation, I spend, I'm not kidding, I'm now in charge of reconciliation, First Holy Communion. I spend 90% of my time evangelizing the parents and the kids, right? 90% 90% of my time. And it's mostly the parents. The number one complaint we get was, wow, that was really for us and not really our kids. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of the point. Yeah. Because if you don't live it, it won't be handed down. No. Right? So we're looking for conversion. We're looking for a radical newness of life. So imagine coming before the throne of grace, right? Right? And saying, I don't believe in you. I don't believe in any of this stuff. Just give me, give me, give me. Give me my talisman. You know, like it's so contrary to what we think. What we should say is, oh my you, (laughs) you are the God of the universe and you want to give yourself to me in Holy Communion. You want to wash me clean in the waters of baptism, which is your blood cleansing my soul. You want to do this to me so... All I can say is thank you. Todah in Hebrew, like Eucharist, right in in Greek, like right? all I can say is thank you. Right? That is the mode of someone who has faith. So what the sacraments might objectively be real, but no grace is applied to the soul who persists in unbelief. Dead faith does not lead to salvation. St. James said that. Right. St. James did not say, if you do a bunch of good works, your faith doesn't matter. He says, my good works demonstrate my faith. Right. That's what James says in James chapter two. Faith without works is dead. Okay. So living the life of the gospel matters. But a dead faith, even if you do the sacraments, don't communicate eternal life. And that's scary. That's scary. So, what also, and here's one more distinction you don't need to have perfect faith. Right. No. As in, as in the fact of you know all my sins are gone, like I'm an adult coming for baptism, I'm perfect. St. Thomas Aquinas would talk about right faith is necessary for baptism because the justice of God, he quotes uh, Romans 3.22, the justice of God is by faith in Jesus Christ, right? So when you think about that, right faith doesn't mean perfect faith. This is from um, uh, Ralph Martin. He says, at least it means this, a general faith and an intention to receive the sacrament as it is understood by the church. So what this means is I can have an adequate faith, but if I have no faith, there's no sacrament. I might not be perfect in my faith. I mean, think about the apostles. They said, we believe, O Lord, help thou our unbelief. All right. So not even the apostles. I mean, after the resurrection, they were worshiping Christ in Matthew twenty-eight, eleven, I believe it says, they worshipped him, yet some doubted. Right. So there still is this life of faith. Now, granted, Pentecost hadn't come, but there is still this moment of like there is a defect of the will and a defect of the intellect and a defect of our faith that doesn't invalidate the sacrament. But then there is. Right. 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 If you don't repent and you receive a sacrament of repentance you don't get forgiveness.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean in a certain, in a certain sense like, you know, even even saints in, on their deathbeds, you know, had had doubts and things like that. So, I mean, that's not that's not a problem with regards to letting allowing God to work in your soul. It what what the issue is is that do you have the kind of faith that it's like, you know, what Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I mean, it it was basically like, where else are we supposed to go? You know, I, yeah, it's difficult to follow you, but where else are we supposed to go? So I, I, I just think like, I, I kind of swung like working in parish work where it was like, I've, that was like a pendulum swinging from side to side and kind of in the middle realized like, hold on, you know, there's, there's more of a story here than just uh, abundance of faith or complete lack of faith. There's like a messy in between, and that's where you meet people and try to draw them into a a upright, a mature adult faith. Uh, and that's when you start to see people's lives change through the sacraments because they're, they're, it there's full reciprocity there, right? It's the dialogical nature that they're they're offering themselves totally and completely to God who offers himself totally and
0: completely. Yeah, let me give you two quotes, okay? yeah, I think this first quote. So this first one comes from a guy named Coleman O'Neill, his book Meeting Christ in the Sacraments. And it starts off, Thomas teaches that the reception of the sacrament should not be counted on to remove obstacles of lack of repentance, unbelief, and other forms of insincerity. The removal of these obstacles needs to precede the reception of the sacrament. Right. Right. So then he quotes Thomas Aquinas in uh, the Tertia Pars, Questio 69, Article 9, and uh Answer two, when God changes man's will from evil to good, man does not approach with insincerity, but God does not always do this, nor is this the purpose of the sacrament, that an insincere man be made sincere, but that he who comes in sincerity be justified. Right. So you come saying to the Lord, if I but t- touch the hem of your garment,
1: then power goes forth.
0: Right, but if you're like, yeah, let's see what this guy can do. Yeah, you, know, well, you come in yeah, with yeah. insincerity. But, 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 it but let's that's but not let's, uh,
1: let's also like even within that, give a range here, a spectrum, because sincerity can also be like, um, look, I'm desperate, God. If you're real, touch me. You know that that's yeah. enough. That that is enough. If and you're that's real, sincere. touch me. You know? right? It is. It's deeply sincere. Yeah, and usually that
0: kind of attitude is not expressed the day before baptism or the day of baptism. Right. That attitude is expressed when people are on their knees calling on God in prayer. And if we are evangelizers, we're also prayer warriors, and we're praying with those people, the people who are desperate. Like today, I have a phone call with a man. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been like this, David, but um, working in parish work, uh, parents of adult children who have strayed from the faith yeah. and who maybe are sowing a slight sign of return immediately start like, call him, yeah. talk right, to him, right, sit right, down with right, him. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So this woman, um, after a Eucharistic procession that we did on our campus, um, which was just amazing, uh, she said, I need to talk to you. My adult son is getting divorced, and it's brutal. This woman is malicious, how she's like ripping him apart. Yeah, and and the the details that she gave me are are like bone chillingly cold. Like, yeah. And she said, "What advice you give me?" I said, "Tell him to sell all of his possessions to pay for a lawyer because he needs the best divorce lawyer because this woman is gonna skin him alive uh. and laugh the whole time." And she's like, "Oh my gosh!" Yeah. And I go, "And you know, you can give him my number and I'll call him." <laughs> but what happens in this moment? That the day she serves him with papers, which is the first time he ever heard of getting a divorce. Um, you know, his whole life fell apart. What'd he do the next day? He went to church. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. And I've had this happen so many times, especially for men. Like I was coasting. I thought things were okay. And I realized I never had control to begin with. Right. And so they bend the knee and that's where the grace, the prevenient grace of Christ, the leading grace of Christ. And this is our job is leading us to us, to the church. Right? To bring that faith and, and to bring them home. Okay. Do you want to move on to the next half of the email? Uh, Yeah. Mm, okay. <clears throat> Go ahead. But I still struggle with baptism, in particular infant baptism, where the child is not professing their belief. I've always had the understanding that infant baptism makes sense because it is not what the child is professing belief in, but the graces that are conferred regardless of the child's profession of faith. But I suppose that is why the parents and godparents' profession of faith in this moment is so important. Would a baptism done for cultural reasons and not carry the same graces and cleansing from sin?
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about this. Great, great question. It's great. You go first, bro. You go first. Okay. Let me just set the stage and say um, some principles to understand the answer that Gomer will eloquently (laughs) give. The first principle is this. Uh, Baptism seems like it's a one and done thing, but it's not. It is a seed planted that needs growth, that needs to germinate within our soul, and will not stop growing until the day that we. Well, I don't even know. I don't even know if it will stop growing when we go to heaven. I actually I doubt it. I doubt that it will ever stop growing. Um, but the the fact of the matter is, it, you know, like it seems, the way you're asking the question is that it's a one and done thing. Like, did it take effect or not? And there are aspects to the sacraments that do have that like the, for instance, the change of character. Okay. But there are uh, greater aspects of the sacrament that are, should be seen as more of a flowering, right? Over a lifetime of a person's life that they respond to the grace of that sacrament. So first of all, kind of understand it that way. Okay. That you it's not a one and done thing. Okay. Second of all, uh, it, it, <laughs> It is the kind of thing that we do respond to, but again, you don't respond to necessarily on that date, right? That a child, and this is why it gets into the question of, well, should you have a child baptized if there's no intention of living in the faith? That becomes a very messy question, okay? Um, Because what is expected is that the parents will raise their child in a way that he he or she will have a chance to respond to have the dialogical nature of that sacrament come to fruit within the child's life. Yeah. You want to go? Well,
0: so what I would say is, First and foremost, we need to understand, let's, let's look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church on infant baptism. Born with a, oh, paragraph 1250, how dare I? Born with a fallen human nature and tainted by original sin, children also have the need of a new birth and baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God. Oh, wow, freedom of the children of God. That'd be a great program. To which all men are called. The sheer gratuitousness of the grace of salvation is particularly manifest in infant baptism church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth the code of canon law recommends three weeks christian parents will recognize this practice also in course blah 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 now why do we do baptism for infants first and foremost the faith of the church precedes the faith of the individual right the faith of the church precedes any individual faith i didn't give myself faith i didn't baptize myself i didn't preach to me this is the same thing about holy communion i don't give myself holy communion right so how do we respond with the sacraments and with faith the faith of the church precedes the faith of baptism so when we talk about this, we say, uh, paragraph 1255, for the grace of baptism to unfold, the parents' help is important, so too the role of the godfather and godmother who must be firm believers, able and ready to help the newly baptized. Their task is truly an ecclesiological, or excuse me, a truly ecclesial function, and the Latin, the word for ecclesial function is officium, or office. The whole ecclesial community bears some responsibility for its development and safeguarding. So, in summary, The reason why we baptize infants is one, we're not individualists as a church. Two, that the church and her faith precedes the faith of the individual believer. But three, it it rests upon the community of faith between the parents and godparents, right? So this means that faith is required for the sacrament of baptism for infants. It is precisely the faith of the parents. And so when we talk about this, the socializa- socialization I can't talk today um, within the natural family should be understood as like, yeah, Faith is the central part of our lives, right? And so the problem is, if we have parents who don't represent the faith, then it relies on the Godparents. If we have godparents who aren't living a Christian life, then we cannot baptize babies. We cannot baptize babies. There has to be a founding hope that the baby can be raised in the faith. If the baby cannot be raised in the faith, we do not baptize babies because there is no preceding and accompanying
1: faith. Yeah. uh, and, And to Gomer's point about the church, the church's faith preceding our faith, uh, you know, the church has the right to claim an individual period. I mean, that's, that's a long, long standing teaching of the church that the church has the right to take an individual into herself. Right. And, um, there are a lot of effects of baptism that the church can do based on a future faith, you know? So, but I, I, I think that like, once again, going back to this idea of like, we are so far from what Gomer just said in most parishes there is no one who is denied baptism these days. Yeah. Almost no one. Almost no one. Um, and so, uh, once again, we we just don't have any idea what it should look like. Whereas in the early church, it was a pretty common thing. Um, I mean, baptism was denied regularly if there was like some major issue, you know, in someone's life. And the major issue nowadays is that there just there's no sign, there's no evidence that. They're actually going to live a life of faith.
0: Yeah. And the Vatican even did a follow-up. Uh, I wish I could remember the name of the article. Let me, let me see. Certain questions on baptism. So there was a document that was released um, by the Vatican in 2006, I believe, um, that was talking about um, what do you do when there's no founding hope? what do you do? And the church says this, like, so if an infant comes forward, if a parent comes forward with an infant, if the infant comes forward, baptize that infant. But if the parent comes forward, if an infant walks forward, (laughs) exercise that infant. What up, Gomer? (laughs) I'm here for you and your soul. No, um, (laughs) if a child is brought forth for baptism and the parents want it, um, and then you find out that they are living in an illicit marriage, that doesn't mean that they're Unable to be baptized, right? right. If the parents, you don't punish the child for the sake of the parents. Right. However, if there is no life of faith, so for instance, I had two uh, two gay men beg for baptism. And they came
1: to wait, the church wait, wait, wait. and it Baked was bacon baptism for their child.
0: For their children, for their child, okay, for okay, their adopted okay. uh, uh, baby. And so they came and I sat down and I've told the story before, but for three hours I talked with them, preached the gospel to them. They cried. They, you know, talked more about the faith. I told them if they want to come to Mass, I will sit with them. Why did we baptize their child? Because their godmother, the woman who was proposed to be the godmother was their next door neighbor and takes them to takes that baby sometimes even to daily mass but has taken that baby every single sunday to mass before they even came asking for holy baptism that's insane so that presents what we call a founding hope if it's not going to be the parent the wider community that's the whole point of godparents that's the whole point so um so but then the church in this document that i gotta find i'll try to find it and send it to ascension to get the um to get the thing out there but um in reviewing these, these situation, situations of the pastoral response, it said, if, you, if there is no founding hope, then you can't administer the sacrament of baptism. So in um, paragraph 94 of the Reciprocity, it says, in the case of children, there must be a hope based on education in the faith, thanks to the faith of the adults who take responsibility. Without any hope in a future education in the faith, the minimum conditions for a meaningful reception of baptism are not met. It's not met, and we cannot then baptize. And that's really hard for a lot of church workers to say and to sue. But I just had a two hour now, yeah, probably about two hours worth of, of working with a couple, uh, really just the wife, to get their child baptized because I refused to baptize their infant because they refused to live a life of faith. And I was, so I, you know, you don't come in and be like, you better prove to me. Right. Oh, it's called Pastor Luis actio. Pastor, pastoralis axio, instruction on infant baptism. Um, but the this so we would talk and I said, Okay, well when do you go to mass? Well, because of the pandemic. I said, Okay, okay, okay. Because of the pandemic, fine. Do you go to mass outside of that? Do you pray? Like, are you going, now the dispensation in our diocese has been lifted on, on January 2nd or 3rd. And so I was like, do you go now? Are you praying? And they're like, yeah, we go here, we blah, blah, blah. I said, you have to understand, the reason why we're fanatical about this is it is our job to defend the dignity of the sacrament and to make sure that there is a founding hope that your baby is going to be raised Catholic. And I said, and listen when I say this. I want to help you. Right. That's why we want you to be members of our church so that you can have support. Cause I know how hard it is to try to be Catholic in this crazy world and to have moved from your family here in Conroe and to do all this stuff. I said, that's why we're here. That's why the church wants you in a faith community. Cause it can be hard. And I said, and I'm telling you, I want to help you like personally, like let's do this together. And she's like, Oh, Oh, Okay. So here's the thing. I also think the reason why we rubber stamp everyone and just give them infant baptism, because we don't want to to do do the Francis thing. We don't want to accompany. We don't want to evangelize. We don't want to catechize. We don't want to potluck. We don't want to pray with. And when we do, when we fail to do those things, to put our own selves on the line for other people, that's where we are failing the gospel. And every invalid sacrament administered under our rubber stamping dictatorship Uh, Will be so many uh, condemnations of ourselves, right? I'm not going to evangelize, but I'm going to baptizing thugs. (laughs) (laughs) So the tradition has always done infant baptism, yeah. And these were people who died for faith in Jesus. Why did they permit it? They permitted it because we want the kingdom for everyone, and the grace of Christ is gratuitous, but it's not cheap. Yeah, it's not cheap grace. Right, and what the church asks is that child needs to have a life of
1: faith. This isn't magic, right? Oh, you're baptized, you're done. This isn't magic, right? Yeah, so. and 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 you know, Gover, uh he said, you know, we—it's his job to defend the the dignity of the sacrament. Is that what she said? Yeah, yeah. It's and it, its also your job to defend the dignity of that person. Yeah, you know that if you were if you give it away cheaply, like you say, then they may think you know baptism is the gate of heaven right uh, they may think that just because they were baptized that, that that guarantees them salvation and that is not that's not okay right i mean it's not okay for us to 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 have that laxadaisical attitude because it passes on to those that we serve and you know that poor child might might live a life of total you know whatever uh, you know total atheism total selfishness say like oh well that's okay because my parents baptized me when i was younger and the church allowed it so that must be all i need you know yeah and we've had parents
0: who like here's the other thing godparents who are in irregular marriages right that's the number one cause of problems because people just want my friend my relative to be the godparent yeah and we tell them all the time no the godparent is a catholic role model that you have some relationship with a catholic role model And I can tell you, the people who actually wait and find a good role model are the people whose kids have been blessed by their godparents. Right, right, right. right. Because they see it. Like me and my family, all of our godchildren, we have a picture of them on one wall, and it's all up on the wall. So all the kids that we're godparents for, we put them up on the wall. I'm blessed that um, the Lambert baby that was just born yesterday morning— um, me and Shannon were asked to be the godparents, right? So yet another child up on the wall. Um, we're super excited for this, but we take our role as godparents seriously. We pray for our god kids. We're in their lives as much as we can be. I'm not perfect at it. The people who live really far away, it's even harder to be active in their lives and stuff. But um, I'm telling you, we got they to charge
1: out. a significant amount.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I make a sweet thousand dollars off of every <laughs> child that I'm the godparent for. But um, let me give you one one more thing um, from Pastoralis uh, Pastor Alice Axio, uh, paragraph 1331. Hopefully this will be in the show notes if I remember to get this in time. Um, it sometimes happens that pastors are approached by parents who have little faith and practice their religion only occasionally, or even by non-Christian parents who request baptism for their children for reasons that deserve consideration. In this case, the pastor will endeavor by means of clear-sighted and understanding dialogue to arouse the parents' interest in the sacrament they are requesting and to make them aware of the responsibility they are assuming. In fact, the church can only accede to the desire of these parents. That is those parents with little or no faith or non-Christians. They can only um, accede to the desire of these parents if they give an assurance that once the child is baptized, we'll be given the benefit of Christian upbringing required by the sacrament. The church must have a well-founded hope that the baptism will bear fruit. Fort. Uh, if the assurances are given, for example, the choice of godparents who will take sincere care of the child or support of the community of the faithful are sufficient, the priest cannot refuse to celebrate the sacrament without delay in the case of children of Christian families. On the other hand, if they are insufficient, it will be prudent to delay baptism. However, pastors should keep in contact with the parents so as to secure, if possible, the conditions required on their part for the celebration of the sacrament. See, See? Keep in contact. If even the solution fails, it can be suggested as a last recourse that the child be enrolled in a catechumenate to be given when the child reaches school age. So we're saying this, essentially. If family of, of, of an infant being baptized does not have a living faith and the godparents don't have a living faith, you cannot baptize that child because our faith matters. It's not an individualistic faith right? It's an ecclesial faith. But if those bare needs are not met, then we can't baptize. If they are met, then we have to. The priest must baptize without delay, right? So our for our role as lay people, I always tell in my department of evangelization, we have two jobs, to uphold the dignity of the sacraments and to evangelize all souls who come to us, right? And so that way, we have zeal for what Dave said, right? Both protecting sacraments from sacrilege, but also Bringing souls into union with Christ forever. So both of these are things that we have to do. Both that you can never get rid of that tension. The moment you give away a sacrament for those who do not have faith, you are ruining their ability to have faith. Right. So this is a you're ruining for them the the grace of the sacrament to be unleashed in their life. It's just like priests who don't call out sins and demand repentance of sins. You're cheapening people's ability to be free. Right. Right.
1: right. Right. The bondage is there, whether they know it or not. So there's like several other questions in this email that I think we should address, but we're at 47 minutes here.
0: Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. What shall we do? Hey, how about this? What if we did a lightning round after the commercial break? Boom. Boom. All right, ladies and gentlemen, email us, eksb at essentialpress.com. We would love to talk with you. We'd love to answer your questions. We would love to walk with you through this crazy means of evangelizing souls in such a crazy contradictory world. Eksb at Am
1: I saved? How do I develop a better prayer life? How do I trust in God? The Curious Catholic is a new series of bite sized books from Ascension that answer these questions and more. The Curious Catholic features small books from various authors that provide busy Catholics ways to go deeper into spiritual questions. The first three titles in the series are from Father Mike Schmitz, host of the Bible in a Year podcast. Father Mike's books explore the topics of salvation, prayer, and trusting in God. To learn more about the Curious Catholic series, go to AscensionPress.com slash catholic. That's AscensionPress.com slash catholic. Welcome back to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. We're continuing on with this awesome email from uh, Rebecca, uh, asking questions about our series going on right now on the document uh, on the reciprocity between faith and faith. In the sacraments, in the sacramental economy, she asked all the questions we were expecting people to ask. So, thanks so much for sending this in. Uh, we're talking about, you know, what happens when faith is not involved here, okay? Um, and we're going to do a lightning round here because she has a few more points here, and um, and we want to just fly here. So, the next one is: uh, How would this play out with a priest being ordained? If a man is ordained without faith, does a supernatural change still occur? And how could this affect his ability to administer the sacraments? She says, I know I'm spiraling here, <laughs> right? These are, these, these are what if scenarios. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, th- this is one I talked about with Mike Cirillo, go, go ahead. Comer, if you want
0: No, to- no, no. Keep going. You're so, you're doing such a beautiful job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually a change does occur, but of course what we want is for the full engagement of the sacrament. Okay. Um, that the church can ordain, um, could ordain a man without faith. It's what. what what you have to understand when it comes to the priesthood is what the church intends is what if the if the if the person intends what the church intends then we we we're okay here okay um that if the intention is is uh together with the church that everything's okay here so um of course uh if a priest is ordained and loses his faith it doesn't mean Right, that uh, that the the Eucharist isn't, um, or that the bread and bread and wine is not transformed. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that you're not uh, 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 absolved of your sins or anything like that. But if the man intends what the church intends, and everything's okay there.
0: Yeah, and when we talk about this, it's funny that the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments and the sacramental economy. I love saying that title. Um, what they they never address faithless priests. And I think they don't because they talk they talk about the the sacraments of initiation, and then they talk about marriage, and they go on for a long time about marriage because this kind of follows, takes up what came before in like the 1970s about matrimony, and what do you do if you have non, you baptize non-believers, right, getting married. So- within the context of the priesthood the presumption is you're not going to become a priest unless you believe in this stuff right but there are priests especially in poor areas um throughout history today middle ages dark ages whatever that they became priests solely because it was economically beneficial for careerism, them careerism yeah yeah i mean they had like this one priest uh, i'll never forget this is polish guy awesome dude and he was talking to me he said you know i served for several years in germany before i came to the states and I hated being a priest there. And I said, what, why? And he said, because all the German church is a very rich church because it's all collected by the taxes. Right? Um, so the German government collects the taxes, on be, the tithe on behalf of the Catholic church. And he said, and what happens is priests can be very, very wealthy. So there's all these priests driving around in Mercedes-Benz. Now he he gave all the caveats, not everyone, blah, blah, blah. But he said he met this priest who just said to him, like, We're, why are you not driving a nicer car? And he's like, becomes i'm a priest and he's like wait so essentially through this conversation i'll I'll shorten it lightning round uh that he said he was shocked that this polish priest didn't have a mistress oh didn't have a summer house didn't have you know was essentially that this guy was just living it was it was purely a career if not play acting right and so um the idea of the sacraments that the priest performs, all he has to do is intend what the church intends, even if he no longer believes it, and it's ex opere operato, right? Like, it still is the is, is valid sacrament. But it's different for us coming... So the document wants to emphasize the receptivity of right, the sacraments, right, not, not the, the conferral. conferral. So that's where some of the... So if a man presents himself to the bishop and he has no faith, um, it would the same thing. If he has no intention of living the life of a priest then I would sincerely doubt that man is a priest. Right, exactly. That's a crazy thing, but it has a character
1: just like confirmation does and baptism does. Right. Uh, then she says, oddly, this all makes sense to me for marriage and confession. Without a contrary heart, a confession wouldn't be valid. Yeah. Uh, although I just want to point out yeah, a contrition of will is what's necessary for a confession to be valid. You don't, you don't necessarily have to feel... Yeah. have all the feels of sadness and confession, although that's great. But contrition of wills, is what's necessary. And then, and then she says, uh, and without faith, a marriage could be invalid and annulled. That's a sticky wicket that you got into So let me,
0: let me address this straight from, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah. straight from the document, paragraph 168, the necessity of intention. As we have said, the traditional doctrine of the sacraments includes the conviction that the sacrament requires at least the intention to do what the church does. Okay, the intention to do what the church does, and here's the quote. All these sacraments are realized by three elements, of things as matter, of words as form, and of the person of the minister who confers the sacrament with the intention of doing what the church does. Cum Okay, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> if one of them is missing, the sacrament is not performed. If one of them is missing, the sacrament is not performed. The correct matter, the right words, the form, and the intention Intention. of doing what the church does. According to the common opinion of Latin theology, the ministers of the sacrament of marriage are the spouses who reciprocally donate their marriage. In the case of sacramental marriage, at least the intention to perform a natural marriage is required, right? So when a non-believer, when an unbaptized person marries a Catholic, they do not have a sacramental marriage. They have, a natural marriage, right. totally good, in line with the church, you can receive holy communion, but it is not sacramental. If you marry a Protestant who was baptized, that's a sacramental marriage. Okay. Now, natural marriage, as the church understands it, includes as essential properties indissolubility, fidelity, and ordering to the good of the spouses and the good of the offspring. Therefore, if the intention to enter into marriage does not include these properties, at least implicitly, there's a serious lack of intention. Capable. Capable of calling into question the very existence of natural marriage, which is a necessity, uh, the necessary basis for a sacramental marriage. So what do we mean by all that? If you are getting married and you make your wife, uh, your fiance sign a prenup, right? You are anticipating dissolubility, right? If you are a serial adulterer, cheater, and then you get married and you have no intention of putting away your mistress, right? You have lost fidelity. Right, And that is why um, adultery can actually uh, trigger an annulment case, the granting the declaration of an annulment of nullity, because if there is a repeated pattern of a lack of fidelity, and I have worked on several annulment cases where that was the cause, and ordering to the good of spouses, the good of the offspring. So again, if if the minister doesn't intend what the church intends, and in the sacrament of matrimony, you have to at least implicitly intend what the church intends, but they're going to sterilize themselves and never have kids, right? They are okay with having an open marriage or something or, like or that. Just,
1: or even more simple, just failure to bond. They, they're not planning to make a marriage. Yeah, pl- they, they have never had that plan to actually live as uh, as a family and not as just a single person in conjunction with another single person. Yeah. It, it's sad. Yeah. <laughs> Pope Benedict the talks about how an absence
0: of faith can damage the goods of marriage. Um, and Francis points out how the root of the marriage crisis lies in a crisis of knowledge enlightened by faith and evokes a lack of faith as a possible motive for simulation in consent that people fake it because they don't really care. See, that's the problem is if you don't really believe in Christ, then you'll go through this little ritual to make the in-laws happy. Right. And that's a problem. Right.
1: Right. That's right. a deep problem. Well, th- this has been a uh, great email, Rebecca. Honestly, thank you so much for sending it in. As always, if anyone has any questions, even if it's like 20 questions like Rebecca had, please email us at eksb at ascensionpress.com. We love hearing from you guys, and we've gotten a bunch of emails lately. Uh, Gomer, I think e and d or d and e sorry i don't know why i said the opposite uh d and e in the document is what we're going to discuss next i think so yeah i think so d and e so review d i don't remember no i look i looked at the last episode from before last and i think that was it so d and e is what we'll discuss next week and uh yeah i hope uh if you live in tulsa come out and see me uh Sunday night and if you live in Houston, go by and just honk in front of Domer's house. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. Houston Coalition for Life. God
1: bless you all. Bless. Bye.